Hey, before we get going, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, eToro. Let's talk about trading. Maybe your MO is just stacking sats once a week, or you're one of those cowboy altcoin traders who go deep into technical analysis. I don't know. Maybe you're just a muggle and you're trying to get into this whole cyber cash thing. Maybe you actually do want to put some skin in the game, but you have no idea where to begin. Now there's one trading app for all of that. eToro. It's a trading platform and mobile app that lets you buy and sell cryptocurrency. And it's also the number one social trading platform in the world. Listeners, you might even be asking, what the hell is a social trading platform? Copy trading is a feature that lets you mirror the actions of top traders on the platform. This way, you can learn about due diligence and all the other technical things it might take months to pick up on your own just by copying the behavior of the top traders on the platform. So head over to eToro.com and get started on your portfolio today. eToro, smart crypto trading made easy. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Dave Hollerith. This is the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. The days are getting shorter in Nashville and the year's almost over, but the Bitcoin scene has been as crazy and interesting as ever. If we're looking back on 2019, one thing that might have slipped under the radar for you is what's been happening with the blockchain analysis company, Chainalysis. Coming to the end of what appears to be a successful year of growth, the company has cut 20% of its workforce back in November. Now, it's probably an understatement to say the work of blockchain analysis companies like Chain Analysis isn't always welcomed by Bitcoiners. Considering the work they do to help track the flow of cryptocurrency transactions for financial institutions and government agencies, there tends to be two great narratives we hear about how these companies affect Bitcoin. One is that they bring more transparency and in turn increase Bitcoin's adoption and legitimacy. The other is that they are leveraging data to provide better surveillance for corporate entities and nation states at the expense of individuals. So with that in mind, I think it's worth paying attention to these companies. And today I've got an interview with Philip Gradwell. He's chief economist at Chain Analysis. We talk about what exactly is learned from their blockchain analysis products why they're seeing so much growth in Asia Pacific, why they cut 39 employees, and finally, towards the end, whether they are putting resources into tracking off-chain transactions. But real quick, I want to bring up another company that's a bit less controversial in the community. Our sponsor, the Celsius Network. The TLDR version of it is, the Celsius Network lets you earn interest on your crypto and instantly borrow against it. And there are no fees, ever. There are more than 50,000 active wallets using their services. And right now, they're offering users 10% annual interest on their crypto deposits. That's not only unheard of in the traditional banking industry, it's also a pretty good deal from a crypto company. And right now, the Celsius Network is giving our listeners, you guys, $10 in BTC when you make a deposit of 200 or more dollars in crypto or stable coins by using the promo code BitcoinMag. Again, the promo code is BitcoinMag. Check out their website today. Now, here's my interview with Philip Gradwell. Hey, Philip. Welcome to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Hey, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
So you're the chief economist for chain analysis. Can you explain exactly what you do? So my role is really about looking at all of the on-chain data. That's the data on the blockchain that we have at Chainalysis that we have you know, structured and added labels and other metadata to. Uh, and I look at that from a, a big picture to try and understand what are the trends that are going on? How can that help our customers understand going on in terms of compliance, but also what's going on in terms of the cryptocurrency markets? Fundamentally, what I assume you guys do is you use Bitcoin transaction data to get analysis and insights for government or companies so that they can make better decisions. Could you sort of explain the kind of big questions you're trying to answer in your work? Yeah, so that's a nice way of framing it. We're trying to help people make better decisions. And obviously at the moment, we're focused on law enforcement and compliance, trying to make sure people make better decisions there, that they can accept crypto that from sources that they want to accept it from. But there's a lot of other decisions we need to help people with in crypto. For example, you know, should institutional money actually come in? Should someone make a VC investment into a cryptocurrency business because actually this market is going somewhere? It's really that set of questions that I'm trying to help people understand. That's where the economics comes in. Do you interact with a lot of VC firms? No, I mean, honestly, a lot of my work has been relatively internal. I've actually been at Chainalysis for about two years. You know, I kind of turned up and was kind of excited, like, yeah, this is an amazing economic data set. Let's go, you know, tell the world about it. And then when you start trying to do that, you start to realize just how complicated doing really rigorous on-chain analysis is. Uh, and so we've spent a lot of time and you know, a lot of you know, research time, resources, building up that understanding. A lot of what we've done, we've distributed through the media and now increasingly thinking, how can we share this data in other ways? Can you tell me how you actually collect your data? I know that Bitcoin is a public blockchain, but beyond that, it's a little bit more unclear to me about how you actually uh, get information about uh, Bitcoin transactions. Well, as you said, it does start with the blockchain. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, hey, you know, there's on the blockchain. It's, that's actually not as simple as it sounds. You know, running nodes for loads of different blockchains, ingesting that data, putting it into an abstraction that allows you to query it and make sense of it. Like, that's actually a reasonable task. But then we do add a lot extra to that data. And there's two key elements of that. The first is what we call attributions. So at Chainalysis, we really focus on the services, you know, so the businesses that are operating on the blockchain. And they have, you know, wallets. And you can actually identify which wallets belong to a service. For example, by going and logging in and making, you know, a deposit account, deposit some Bitcoin in. And that gives you ground truth that that address belongs to that service. But there are just a bit under 600 million addresses on the Bitcoin blockchain at the moment. You obviously can't go and make a transaction with all of those. Uh, so once you've got those ground truth addresses for the services, you've got to work out which addresses that are connected to that one where you've got the ground truth are also part of the service. Uh, and that's what we call clustering or aggregation. And that's where you can label whether or not a set of Bitcoin addresses might belong to the same person. Yeah. So I mean, we don't actually focus on the person. We really focus on the services because actually, especially for our customers, and if I'm honest, also when you think about the economic, it's actually the businesses on the blockchain that are of most interest. So from the compliance perspective, it's you want to understand, hey, did this Bitcoin come from you know, an exchange or a darknet market? Even if you're doing actual economics, you know, you can estimate, well, these look like people, but you don't need to know, oh, you know, this is Philip. Uh, you just need to know this is like 
probably a person, but it's really important to capture, well, this actually is an exchange. You know, this actually is a dotnet market. And in terms of actually distinguishing between a person or a, a company or an exchange, is that just a matter of the level of volume or Bitcoin that's transacted from a wallet? Like, how does that distinguish? Yeah, well, most of the time it's some volume, although there are some individuals who've got an awful lot of Bitcoin. Sure. Um, so, but yeah. It really is perhaps around like the frequency of the transactions. I mean, even some things like how rounded are the numbers is sometimes a sign about whether perhaps it's at least a bot versus a human that's making a transaction. Um, so there's a whole you know, bunch of different ways you can understand that, but definitely volume is one. In a way, you just got to think what's the different type of behavior that a, a person has versus you know a business that is composed of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. When you're conducting your work, and I kind of imagine you guys as having this like massive database with sort of like Bitcoin address identifiers that you've like collected over the years and you know, some sort of like labeling in that sense. Last week, there's uh, some action from one Bitcoin whale. I mean, I don't even know if it's an individual or not, but people were wondering about it and they were trying to follow it and it didn't seem to make a lot of coherent sense. And people couldn't tell if it was nefarious activity or if it was somebody trying to uh, just create more privacy by peeling. If you see something like that happening, how likely is it that you'll see that one morning and then you guys say, all right, we're going to go look into this or like, let's check this out. Let's like plug it into the database. How likely is that scenario to happen? We all have this software called Reactor, which allows us to see all of the flows between all the different entities. And there's definitely almost like a little community within chain analysis. If something interesting happens, you know, our internal Slack channel, people are like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? But actually my day to day is about trying to focus on the bigger patterns. So it's interesting if there's this one whale movement. Questions I'm trying to answer are, if we look at all the whale movements, you know, say over the last year, does that have a statistically significant effect on trading volumes or prices? Uh, and so I'm trying not to get too distracted by those single events, because I'm really trying to draw out, are there some big sort of structural lessons that we can take from the data. Yeah. And, and I do want to ask about your work specifically. But before that, I just wanted to get into just some things about chain analysis that I have been interested in. So like the actual idea of this database you use to map out all the Bitcoin transactions or in other cryptocurrencies that are happening. I was wondering, is that all open source data that could essentially be replicated by someone else? I mean, I know there are other companies that do this. I read something about um, the Bitcoin trader Plan B, perhaps using blockchain analysis for trading. I don't know if you're aware of this, but how likely is it for individuals even to sort of like create a miniature model of what you're doing? Yeah, so the raw blockchain data, obviously that's open source. Yeah, there's some data handling challenges, but then the key thing is to understand, look, this address belongs to this service. And there are open source databases on that. There's Wallet Explorer, for example, that gives you some addresses and people, you know, have their own deposit addresses, for example, or Etherscan has loads of tags for Ethereum. Problem there is it is limited. It only gives you the addresses for some exchanges. It only gives you the addresses for some of their wallets. And it doesn't help you understand, for example, well, look, what if the flow of funds goes, say, from a, an exchange through a withdrawal address into a deposit address in another exchange before it gets to another exchange's you know, central wallet? Mm -hmm. That withdrawal address and that deposit address, you know, they would actually be unknown if you were just using the labeling that was you know, on these open source services, you could do your own clustering heuristics. Um, but I, there are some of those that are open source you know, in the academic literature, actually. It's something that you know people in universities quite like to study. But I can say, because I 
interface with that community quite a lot that we definitely have techniques that are kind of an order of magnitude above and sophistication. You know, we've also got ways that allow us to trace through when we don't know you know who holds an address to see where those funds end up so you can do this using you know sort of an individual trader could do this but they just risk getting lost really quickly or they're probably missing a huge amount of what's going on right i see so your company as sort of having a a, a larger first mover perspective in in, in terms of, of what you've learned and what you've been able to do with your team is that correct yeah and i mean it's not just that you know say there are services that no longer operate or you know, an exchange changes its wallet structure. If you weren't actually observing that and tracking that at the time, you'll never be able to attribute that in the future because you'll never be able to interact with it you know, ever again. So right. there's also an element of, you know, you had to be there uh, to be involved. Yeah. Before chain analysis started working with uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, a lot of the ways you would do this or identify wallet addresses is you would just send small amounts of cryptocurrency to them, basically. Yeah. Okay. But otherwise, I've spoken with a few other blockchain analysis companies um, within the space. And from what I understand, there have been two big actions that companies like chain analysis have been gearing up for uh, in the second half of 2019. The first is sort of understanding and providing a solution for cryptocurrency companies who are trying to figure out the financial action task force new travel rule. Mm -hmm. And the second has been what appears to be an industry-wide push into Asia-Pacific markets. Going back to the first topic, can you explain the FATF travel rule and how it's changing your business? Yeah, I'm not like an in-house regulatory expert, but it's obviously yeah. something I keep up with. So the Financial Action Task Force, they, among other regulations, are really requiring cryptocurrency businesses to share more information about their users. So there's this travel rule. If you're sending, say, more than $1,000 and you're sending it from an exchange to another exchange, those exchange needs to say, well, look, you know, this is Philip and he's sending those $1,000 and transmit that information to the other exchange. And you know, this does happen in the fiat system. There are questions about whether this is the best model in the crypto system. You know, there's a lot of personally identifiable information we, you know, that could be floating around. And crypto is very different from the fiat system in the sense that it's not run by you know a relatively small number of regulated entities. It's an industry with some that are regulated, some that aren't, that cross jurisdictions and so on. So it is more complicated. And that's why I think the industry is trying to really get together to try and understand what the correct result is. And Genesis is a company that connects various different players in the market, you know, not just the exchanges, but also the regulators, you know, we're really helping facilitate that dialogue. So I'm always looking for comparisons or metaphors to sort of explain companies in the cryptocurrency space to somebody who does, who's not familiar with cryptocurrency. Is there any kind of comparison you can make with what chain analysis does in the cryptocurrency sector to something another company does or another type of company, how they function in another sector? Yeah. So the thing that I find fascinating about chain analysis is there's a couple of comparisons. We're obviously known for investigations and compliance, and therefore you can go and compare us to companies that are providing software that, for example, help with anti-money laundering, you know, that do transactional analysis in the fiat world. But I also think, look, we're a data company underneath all of this. 
Um, you know, we are understanding this you know, new almost database structure, understanding how value flows between different entities there. And so that gets you into kind of information provision. You know, and there are people who are like, oh, well, does that look a bit like Bloomberg at some point? So I just think blockchains are very different from what we see in the rest of the world in that there's this complete transaction history that allows you to do new types of analysis that aren't possible in the traditional world. And so that's why our company potentially has some different aspects to it over time obviously very focused on investigations and compliance now. For me, it's quite hard to find that ideal comparator in the traditional world. Hopefully there'll be, you know, a number of them. I think of you guys as sort of a, a in-industry link to regulators in cryptocurrency companies, sort of like a bridge. Does I mean, that make sense to you as a metaphor? Yeah, absolutely. It is really important because if you go back to 2013, 2014, there was the Silk Road and you know, law enforcement were like, let's try to shut Bitcoin down. And people say, hey, that isn't so possible, but really probably attacking the network would have been you know, cheaper than the sort of budgets that go into some law enforcement departments. But actually we were able to come along and say, look, you can understand what's going on on the blockchain you know this is actually a challenge that you can meet and you don't want to crush innovation so let's try and manage it and so law enforcement actually has got relatively comfortable with cryptocurrency i mean obviously they still see crimes happening and that's a problem but it's something that can fit into their workflow and in a way they've now sort of handed that problem to the financial regulators and the financial regulators going oh my god do we approve an etf how do we make this work and you know i kind of want chain analysis to be there to say well look actually you can understand it you know, here's some data that explains what's going on and hopefully by being that link between you know the crypto currency industry and the regulators, we can help it grow, you know, like another magnitude each time we solve one of these regulatory problems. There's also obviously two narratives about blockchain analysis companies in general. And one is that that you guys are creating a way to sort of build a pipeline. Pipeline might be the wrong word, but build a way for existing institutions, national regulators to understand or create environments for adoption for this technology. And then the other narrative I hear from a lot of you know skeptics and, and privacy advocates is that essentially what you're doing is creating an easier surveillance mechanism for institutions and companies on individuals. I'm sure you, you're familiar with both those narratives. First time I've heard of this. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah. I'm joking. So could you get, sort of give me your thinking with regards to those two different viewpoints? You know, when it comes to privacy and surveillance, I actually think that the the two extremes of those arguments, neither of them really make sense. So, you know, on the one hand, you're saying we want to have complete privacy, you know, absolutely like no history of any of my transactions or who I am should be shared. And then on the other side, it's saying, look, everything should be totally transparent and everyone should have insight into everything. Like, I just think in reality, you get a mix of those two. You don't get mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency unless there's ways in which people can actually understand what's going on, you know, that they can be honestly less afraid of, you know, this kind of weird world. In fact, just have clear, simple data to make an investment decision. So you do need a level of transparency for people to say, yep, I'm like happy with this, I'm comfortable with this, and therefore I'm going to put you know, my pension money in it, or I'm going to go join a cryptocurrency business, or I'm going to invest in this sector. And I think really that's what I want to provide. Obviously, yeah, there's this other extreme, you know, we're providing surveillance technology. And that's why I really emphasize that we do focus on the businesses that are operating in cryptocurrency. You know, we're not actually putting any personally identifiable information. You know, that does need to be there somewhere in the system. It currently often sits on, you know, exchanges when they do KYC, but you don't need that or want that infused all over the system. But you do need a way for people to ask good questions about what's going on. That's something we try and do in like the rest of our life. And so if we weren't to do that around the flow of money, that would seem kind of strange for me.
what appears to me is like a, a push towards growth in the Asia Pacific region. I, I think it's something like 40% of the top 50 exchanges in terms of Bitcoin on-chain activity takes place in the Asia Pacific market. So is there now currently an increase for chain analysis products in Asia Pacific markets compared to previous years? Absolutely. Asia Pacific has always been a big cryptocurrency market, but I think it's still, you know, it's growing. And there's also an interest, a growing interest in making sure that things are compliant. And for example, with the Financial Action Task Force, that's motivating countries in the region to put rules and regulations in place. In what specific Asia-Pacific countries do you think are making the heaviest investment in terms of uh, regulatory oversight? Definitely Japan, South Korea have been you know, leading the pack, but you also see like, activity in like Malaysia and Vietnam and Thailand and you know, all over the place, really. Talking about the research that you guys do, do you, do you avoid China? Do you do you also like measure uh, trading volume in China? Is that does that work differently? Yeah, so it's definitely something that you know we research internally. Uh, you know, China's a fascinating country in cryptocurrency. I, I can only really speak to the activity we see on exchanges that we believe tend to serve Chinese customers, but definitely they are some of the biggest and some of the most liquid in the market. And you know, I think it's going to be really really interesting also to watch what's going to happen. Certainly, the regulatory environment seems to be changing in China. It'll be really interesting if exchanges, for example, go back onto the mainland. Yeah. Does this mean these countries like South Korea and Japan, from a geographic standpoint, that they are also leading in trading volume of Bitcoin? Broadly speaking, they are major contributors. I mean, thinking about global trading patterns, they're actually quite important in fiat to crypto flows. So they're major on-ramps. But then obviously, there's a lot of crypto to crypto trading. And you know, there is a lot of you know, purely crypto derivatives. So when you're trying to talk about which you know, region has the biggest amount of trading going on in it, you've got to differentiate really between the crypto to fiat side and then the crypto to crypto side, because the crypto to crypto side could be happening anywhere in the world, although most of it is happening in Asia, but then it gets difficult to tie it down to a specific country. So if we're just talking about fiat to crypto, does it look like South Korea and Japan are, are leading in terms of like other Asia Pacific countries? I'm totally honest, I don't know exactly. Um, I would say they're probably leading. Okay, so the increase of Asia Pacific regulation around cryptocurrency, I imagine that is going to have some effect on the industry, which is kind of an understatement. Do you, what do you think those effects will be uh, specifically in terms of like user adoption, even perceived setbacks if regulation is, becomes confusing or something like that? If we want to see more mainstream adoption, a degree of regulation actually is helpful. I mean, Asia has seen a lot of retail adoption. I don't know, but I would suspect that those retail customers are feeling a little bit burnt after 2017. And so if we want to get crypto back as popular as it used to be, I think there does need to be an increase or rebuilding of trust. And actually a bit of regulation will help that. I mean, I'm not an expert in the region, there's a caveat there. And also it does depend on what's actually going to happen regulation-wise in China. Don't know how that'll affect the markets because we don't know what that will look like. Going back more specifically just to chain analysis as a company, at the end of November, uh, you guys had a workforce cut of almost 20%, 39 employees. And that's one of the larger layoffs that have happened in this sector this year. And I also know during the, the same year, chain analysis has had a few, like a string of public successes. Um, in April, you closed your Series B. Over the summer, it was announced that you helped contribute to the largest darknet market takedown for a child pornography website. 
website. And in November, you also held your first industry conference in Manhattan. Can you give me some clarity about the recent cuts at Chain Analysis in light of what I would think looks like a year of growth and success? Yeah, I would be glad to. Because you know, it has been a year of growth and success. But I think something that perhaps isn't talked about that much in cryptocurrency is building a business. It's actually you know, a challenging thing to do. At Chainalysis, we've always focused on making sure that we've got you know, like a strong, solid firm. Yeah, that even goes to things like you know, making sure we've got really good code quality reviews and you know, we've got offices and you know, people processes. There's a lot that goes into actually building a company that sometimes feels a bit different from you know, what else is going on in cryptocurrency. And we have grown. They've got over 140 customers and we serve people across you know, governments across 20 different countries. And as we've built up those products, we've now realized look, it's important for us to focus on what we call the go-to-market strategy, actually demonstrating that we can deliver profitability. You know, we'll need to attract future investors at some point. And so a really tough decision made to just make sure that the structure of our company is aligned with that set of goals and that you know, we can make sure we keep delivering on those successes. So yeah, we had to part way with some you know, really talented colleagues and that was that. Um, but it's kind of part of our goal of let's actually make sure that there's a sustainable business there that can get the investment it needs so we can kill, you know, building in the good products we do. I think anybody who works in this space is no stranger to to uh, layoffs and, and sort of like a change in direction of a company. Um, uh, my my uh, Bitcoin Magazine's parent company, uh, BTC Media, actually uh, had had a, a small sort of uh, string of layoffs that happened in 2018, and we you know we made a pivot to focusing primarily on Bitcoin as opposed to all the other things that were what was going on sort of like in 2017, you know, trying to cover like blockchain and the ICO market and things like that. So it's a fairly common thing to happen to a company. And you're like two years at chain analysis. What have you seen as far as like the development of the company goes in terms of employees and culture? Yeah, so in terms of employees and culture, like the fun thing about Chainalysis is it's actually got this, you know, mix of cultures from because it's spread, you know, globally. And so I quite, you know, I really liked that different, you know, mix of ideas and styles and perspectives. Uh, so, you know, a big mix of you know, like early Bitcoiners and people who are interested in, you know, compliance and investigations. And then you've got your software engineers and then you build out like the rest of the business and the people who are all business. So I think just because we've had that unique perspective of being like a cryptocurrency business while also being, you know, a data and a SaaS business, uh, so a software as a service business, that's been a really kind of heady mix. Uh, so, you know, my days can split between talking to someone about something that's really deep on the protocol side mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, coming in, doing a podcast to try and explain you know, what's actually going on in cryptocurrency. Do you guys consider yourselves a startup at this point? I think we've graduated past that label now. Uh, so I think the idea is actually things are growing and we're trying to become you know, a bit more of like a high growth enterprise. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of high growth, can you speak to what is going to be expected from chain analysis in 2020? I don't think on specifics, but in general, we want to keep growing out the products we have. For example, we recently launched Cryptos, which is a product really for financial institutions to help them 
understand what's going on in cryptocurrency because one of our main aims this year is to help more cryptocurrency businesses get you know fiat bank accounts because we think that's essential to their growth mm -hmm. as we talked about earlier growing an APAC. And, you know, the other thing, like I've just essentially finished a, a year's worth of research, which was pretty deep and fundamental. And so it's about understanding the results of that and how that can raise the level of analysis and understanding in cryptocurrency. <laughs> okay. What's, what's the research? Well, I mean, it was all around, you know, these things we talked about earlier, okay. such as aggregating addresses together, understanding you know flows of Bitcoin between different entities. Um, you know, we did some really kind of quite complicated bits of conceptual work in software engineering, and you know we've now got a lot of it's producing a lot of really interesting data. It tells us, you know, for example, we were able to say, oh look, actually, it's likely these uh, entities are actually operating in this geographic region from say time zone analysis and so on, and we can see how that flows through to another region. Um, so yeah, some really kind of rich detailed analysis there. So I know probably one part of this research has to do with the talk you gave at Chain Analysis Conference um, in New York in uh, November. That was a 20-minute talk. You, you covered a lot of research and data. And in particular, I know you talked about the cryptocurrency exchange and der derivative trading platform, BitMEX. Can you tell me more about some of the insights you learned from that research? Absolutely. And, you know, we just picked that as an example. I mean, obviously, BitMEX is the biggest derivatives platform out there, but I actually think this is an issue that's really for every single derivatives market. So the interesting thing, if you're running a derivatives market, is you need to know what the price of Bitcoin is, because you need to know how to settle those derivatives contracts. You have to get that price from spot markets. Now, you know, the Bitcoin price is volatile. It's not a particularly deep insight. About half the days this year, the Bitcoin price has gone up and about half of the days, Bitcoin price has gone down. But there are some times where the Bitcoin price suddenly falls, uh, you know, like a lot, like mm -hmm. hundreds of dollars in you know, an hour or shorter than that. And we investigated that you know, because we can see the flows into exchanges you know, on the blockchain, i.e. how many Bitcoin are actually going into an exchange. We were able to look at the exchanges that made up the price index uh, of BitMEX. And obviously, if you look at that for, you know, these exchanges are used to make up the price index for all the other derivatives platforms. You know, looking at one particular date that I presented at Lynx, this was the uh, 3rd and 4th of June of 2019. There was actually about 10,000 Bitcoin went into these exchanges that make up that basket. Uh, and that's pretty unusual to happen in a period of about 60 minutes. Uh, you know, the Bitwise 10, they receive about 213,000 Bitcoin on average per week. So suddenly getting 10,000 in an hour, that's unusual. What was perhaps more interesting is an hour or two later, the price fell about 6%. So about $500, $600 fall. We could then look on chain and we could see, well, actually those 10,000 Bitcoin, they all came from two addresses or two entities on the blockchain. So, and they may even be you know, controlled by the same person, but definitely there were at least two people. So you're seeing a very large amount of Bitcoin move into these exchanges from a small number of people, and then some very large sell-offs happening shortly after, and the price then falls. At the same time, you see a really large increase in sell orders on BitMEX. So people who are now betting the price of Bitcoin is going to go down, which of course it conveniently does. And then shortly after, you know, you can see people cashing out on BitMEX. So just using the on-chain data in comparison with the trading data, we can say, well, look, this looks like there might be something going on here that might be worth 
investigating further. Because really, we do want markets that can't be manipulated. If we want cryptocurrencies, say, you know, to get an ETF, to have institutional investors in, to grow that next order of magnitude. So that's why we took a deep dive into this to see, can on-chain data actually tell us something about it? And I think it could. What are some of the things you think it could tell us? On-chain data, with respect to exchanges, because you can see how much is coming in and out, it's a bit like, imagine people were trying to sell gold through an open crime market, and there were five different markets scattered around uh, an area. In the traditional world, you could just see someone shouting out the price of gold and another person shouting out that. And that's all the data that you would have on the market. Mm -hmm. But in Bitcoin, it's as if you can see how much gold is actually being stored in that market. And in fact, you can see the trucks where the gold is kind of driving into the market or indeed it's leaving. So that gives you this next level of detail about supply and demand. That means we've got some real verifiable data on the health of these markets. For example, when we're looking at trading volumes, lots of people say, well, look, we actually don't trust whether exchanges are reporting accurate volumes. And that's because it's cheap to fake exchange volumes, but it's hard to fake your on-chain volumes because you've got to own a lot of Bitcoin to do that. So we can actually use this data to verify, does it look like there's a sensible ratio between the trading volume and the on-chain volume? And that's sort of how you make an assessment as to whether or not the market or maybe exchange looks healthy. I mean, I think like, healthy is a, a really multidimensional word. You know, I, I think it's kind of, do the volumes look accurate? Then, you know, as I talked before, if we see sudden inflows from a small number of counterparties, that can tell us, well, actually, is this market really being dominated by a small number of players? Uh, you know, how concentrated is it? And therefore, if you're not that big player, is that somewhere that you really want to go and trade? Or, you know, if there's a big price change shortly after that, you know, was that just a whale trying to sell a lot of Bitcoin quickly? Or was there something a little bit more nefarious going on? Uh, so yeah, there's different ways in which we can use that on-chain data. Uh, you know, I'm just aware that when I'm asking, like we brought up BitMEX, but a lot of times I'm asking like very macro questions, which is sort of what you do. Yeah, I'm happy with this. <laughs> yeah, so... Comparing past year's transaction volume from 2018, 2017 during the ICO bubble, what has 2019 looked like in terms of volume and maybe just overall transaction data? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers to my fingertips, but I can definitely describe the general trend. Please. I mean, one of the difficult things with making charts about Bitcoin is you know the 2017 bull run because all your charts look slightly ridiculous <laughs> you know like goes to lift off and then kind of goes down but it has started to build up since then and in fact i think 2019 for me has seen some of the you know certainly compared to 2018 much stronger growth so you know we're seeing increases in transaction value and number of transactions over this last year and it you know it's been on an upward trend um, i think the other, the other thing that has been interesting is for example, um, you know, I know this is Bitcoin Magazine, but for example, seeing big increases, say, in Tether transaction volume. This has also been the first year that actually there's been substantial amounts of action in other cryptocurrencies. Do you, do you have further insights about, about um, the increase in Tether transactions in 2019? So I think there's probably two key drivers. One, it does seem to have some genuine uses. Um, for people who are on exchanges and need to move funds around. And I think as it's become, you know, I guess, increasingly embedded in the industry, that seems to have continued. But then you've also got to remember that there's the issuance of Ethereum or Tether on Ethereum. And so that is perhaps increasing some of those volumes, at least 
from if you don't uh, net some of those out as you know tether is being printed on ethereum and then at some point then being swapped so some of the tether that was printed on omni you know, is being exchanged for tether on ethereum and so that's creating some like larger transaction volumes uh, which can you need to remove from your analysis because actually they're kind of just internal treasury action uh, transactions uh-huh so like there's a lot of tether action with regards to going in and out of tether back to ethereum or ethereum back tether and omni and what did what did this indicate to you from a on-chain perspective that's people literally just swapping one currency for another in terms of what it means for you know the broader uses of tether i think we'll kind of need to wait to find out i mean obviously there's kind of benefits of faster confirmation times in ethereum and indeed i think i can't remember the exact number but tether transactions have climbed to be a very large percentage of overall ethereum transactions so like i read a paper back over the summer sort of about like the idea of an international currency or like a global currency and it kind of it dealt with some of the ideas of what would make sort of like a dominant global currency that would sort of be used across the world. It was definitely keeping in mind uh, Facebook's Libra, the Chinese digital yuan that's coming out, and then also Bitcoin. And it was sort of looking at how if something were, if a global currency were to sort of like take effect where it would be used in pretty much all countries along with that country's currency, it would eventually sort of displace the monetary policy for each of those nations. Effectively, it would, it would sink everything because everybody was using the same global currency. I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of the future of cryptocurrency adoption, always thinking about Bitcoin, but just in general, it is a currency that is going to be more highly adopted. Is that going to be something that is going to be spent a lot? Or do you think that's going to be something that people will buy and not spend? I think one of the world changing ideas around cryptocurrency is actually that you know individuals and companies have suddenly realized huh i can invent my own money of all the sort of mental shifts that cryptocurrency has introduced bitcoin has introduced i think that's going to be a really powerful one and i think we're probably going to see you know more experimentation you, know, you mentioned libra the digital yuan and so on but i think for one of those or even bitcoin to get real mass adoption where it becomes an alternative currency it is going to have to be something that is spent i mean you know bitcoin can get big just being a store of value but if you actually want to actively replace you know, a national currency you know it needs to be used by people every day and so that i think is the perhaps the big challenge in a sense for bitcoin and you know i think things like the digital yuan or libra they're going to be focused on being currencies that can be spent much more easily. Uh, and that's why they could pose that challenge. Yeah, I feel like there is like a, a belief or understanding in economics that a more valuable currency is often the one that isn't spent. So I guess in this instance, you're saying that a, that like if a cryptocurrency were to become a global currency, it would need to be less valuable. I mean, I think it, it's the kind of what is a valuable currency? Like, is it something that has a high value relative to other ones and maintains that value over time? Or is it one that facilitates a lot of economic activity? Like, those are both 
relevant use cases for an asset. Obviously, if you want to use your asset as a store of value, you want it to maintain its value relative to other assets and that value to grow over time. But actually, if you want to have you know, a currency that facilitates economic activity, if the currency unit actually gets too, you know, too in demand, there isn't enough of it around, that actually becomes like a cost to that money. And mm-hmm. therefore, people are disinclined to make transactions with it. And indeed, that's perhaps the trade-off we see sometimes when we think about Bitcoin as a store of value versus a means of exchange. I mean, like there's a lot of economic uh, theory around different types of currencies. For example, like I think people should be looking at the euro, for example, where there was one monetary union created over different countries that were in different you know, economic states. Would Libra act a bit like the euro, for example. Like if you think Bitcoin's a rabbit hole, thinking about like Bitcoin and monetary policy and broader currency areas really is a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, it's fascinating too. Just like a a side note, the majority of chain analysis work, as far as I'm aware, deals with on-chain data. Are you you trying to measure off-chain data? Can you measure off-chain or side-chain data in terms of volume um, on Bitcoins like layer two? I'm thinking of things like the Lightning Network. I mean, we don't have an enormous amount of effort resource going into like measuring volumes in particular. Like, I think it's you know it's something we keep an eye on, and we know that the volumes are, are there, but it's once they get to a reasonable size that it's worth putting the investment in, honestly, to you know collect all that data and maintain those pipelines. So something we keep an eye on, but not something we've dived into really, really deeply. Do you think it's possible to do it if, if there's an, like, an economic demand for that to be covered? Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the reasons why it's tricky is because the layer two protocols are not settled enough. Uh, so, you know, will we be able to? I mean, honestly, it will depend on what the final specification is. But definitely there is less visibility into what's going on on layer two than there is on layer one. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, no, it's been a real pleasure. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.